Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mark Ormrod, MBE, was in the Royal Marines and served in both Iraq and Afghanistan, where he suffered life-changing injuries. His story is absolutely incredible, and the way he talks about the events that unfolded in Afghanistan, how he went on to deal with the aftermath, and what he's achieved will leave you in absolute awe of the guy. Mark's story has been made into a movie, and once you've listened to this episode, you're going to understand why. Joining me today is former Royal Marine who served in Iraq and then Afghanistan. He's a four-time Invictus Games gold medalist. He's an award-winning author and motivational speaker. Mark Ormrod, MBE, thanks very much for joining me. Thank you for having me, mate. Appreciate it. Mate, it's a hell of a list, isn't it? Hell of an achievement. Got a few things going on there. Yeah. I often actually have to, to sit down and go over that list sometimes. You know, what, you know when you're, especially with this whole COVID thing and you start to feel a little bit down you know and there's nothing to look forward to and sometimes I've actually gone back to that list and and looked at it just to kind of park myself up a little bit yeah you know and just the exciting thing is thinking about what I want to add to that list and where it's going to be in one three or five years time you know yeah you talk about Afghanistan and how shit that was but how pumped were you when you first got there after Iraq so I'll tell you what in, in Iraq I was 19 it was 2003. I was involved in that initial invasion over the Kuwaiti Iraqi border. And I had a preconceived notion of what was going to happen. I literally thought I was, going to, I was going to drive over that border with a bayonet between my teeth, be crawling around in the mud, diving down from buildings, fast roping at helicopters and all that kind of stuff. And it was boring. It was three and a half months of sunbathing on top of military vehicles you know, keeping on top of my physical fitness, looking after my equipment and, and weapons, doing a few missions, you know, and taskings, but nothing like I thought I would be doing and came back really disillusioned with the whole thing. You know, I thought, hold on, I'm a Royal Marine here. I'm elite, you know, not just in my country, but across the world. I'm trained to do this job. You've thrown me straight in the meat grinder, you know, at 19 years old and I didn't get to do my job. So yeah, I was a little bit disillusioned with the whole thing. But then when Afghanistan came around, it was a whole different beast. Like I was, I was pumped, you know, when, when we found out we were going, I was excited about it because I knew it was going to be different. And from the second I hit the ground, that was confirmed. It was completely different, you know, firefighting every day, getting bombed, rocketed, mortared, uh, living out in a, in a, you know, our, our base we lived out of was just it was called Hesco what they made the wall out of if you just imagine a giant square grid filled with took a giant sandbag effectively it was just walls made out of that it was about one one meter by one meter squared was it or bigger than that yeah and it was just yeah, filled with sand like, so it was, like, it was kind of like a massive sandbag so if you got shot at or anything it was protection right right ballistic protection yeah like a giant cage full of dirt and sand and, and all that kind of stuff that was the perimeter wall of where we're working so 
you know, no big high concrete walls, 20 feet high with, you know, protection or any of that stuff. Just sometimes waist height, that was it, you know, this stuff. So, you know, and you're right out in, in Helmand province, you know, where it's very, very dangerous. And every time you go on a patrol, literally every step you take could be your last, you know, for, for snipers, IEDs. Improvised explosive device. It's like a landmine, isn't it? That That's it an IED in its most basic form, but the, the key word is improvised. So it can be anything, you know, and and we like we can talk about it later, but the different tactics they were using where, you know, we had what we call, they were basically metal detectors. So when people knew that we were using metal detectors to find IEDs, they put plastics in them, um, syringes, needles, glass, nails, you know, stuff that wasn't that detectable but still had a devastating effect. So, you know, every day was you literally, every time you walked through a doorway, you risked getting taken up by a sniper because you're in a bottleneck. Every time you went on a patrol around a village, you went through a river, you crossed a bridge, you know, th- those are natural choke points where you're vulnerable. And, uh, you know, these guys aren't stupid. You know, they're very, very clever. They've been fighting in that terrain for hundreds of years. They know how to use it better than anyone else on the planet. And we were just visiting, you know, we were trying to figure it out as we were going. So yeah, very, very different environment, very, very different war, very different kind of combat. He talked me through the first time you had a chance to open up on the Taliban because there was a lot of frustration building up to that. Um, and then you finally had a chance to get on behind, get him behind the machine gun and let loose a few rounds. Can you talk me through mm-hmm. that situation? If I remember, it was, it was night our base came under attack in the middle of the night. Um, I went running down to one of the Sangers we were looking after, Sanger 4. What's a Sanger? It's basically a watchtower or a, people call them different things, pillbox, you know, where, where a sentry would be posted and they'd have a certain responsibility for an area that they had to watch over. And if anything came in, they reported it back. And in this situation, if you get into a contact and a firefight, then you have responsibility for that direct area. And, and that's what happened. We got in a firefight. We were attacked with AK-47s, RPGs, and things like that. And if I remember rightly, it was about three o'clock in the morning, the first contact that I had. And I ran down there, and there were there was a guy in there already on the GPMG machine gun. There was a spare one sat on the other window. So I just grabbed it. Now, at night, we have you have tracer rounds. So every like third or fourth round glows red. You know, and if they're going down range rapidly enough, it's like a scene out, a scene out of Star Wars. It's just these red flashes hitting things, ricocheting off. And so if you know someone's on target, you can follow their tracer. And that's what they'll often shout, you know, watch my tracer, maneuver onto their position, and you know that you're hitting your target. So, you know, I did that, um, got in a big firefight. Eventually, you know, they weren't returning fire anymore. It's the middle of the night. You know, it wasn't our, our job or responsibility to go and, clear the area on foot after so we stood down got up the next day and um several dead bodies um lying around in the field the the farmers came in you know scooped them up put them in some wheelbarrows and got rid of them and then you finally get a chance to go out and patrol and you have quite regular run-ins with taliban don't you like you can see them they're kind of following you guys around but you can't do much is that right yeah, our rules of engagement were very strict to to the point where, and it wasn't, I mean, this is just for the UK. I don't know what the other 
the other nation's rules were. But if you were, ta- the, you know, the Taliban and I was me and you stood in front of me with a hand grenade and you pulled out the pin, but you kept the fly off lever on, I couldn't shoot you. What? Right? Even though I wasn't allowed to shoot. And then, now if you drop that, there's a threat so I can shoot you. But if you turned your back to me and then dropped it and ran away, I still can't engage. That that were the rules we were playing to. And they knew that. So it was very, very difficult for us to, I guess, make as much progress as you wanted to because they knew that we wouldn't engage in certain situations because that were, that were our rules and they knew we stuck to the rules and we didn't go outside of that. That frustration built up for you a little bit, didn't it, with the grenade yeah. launcher? So we were out on on a patrol. God knows how many we've been on to this point, but we'd, we'd been out quite a long time. We'd gone quite far away from the camp. And, you know, everyone knows what they're doing and everyone's always very vigilant. They're always looking around, observing, reporting back, making sure everyone in not just the section that I'm in, but every other section within radio contact that's out on the ground with us knows our situation. They've got situational awareness. And you have these things called dickers. We call them dickers. It basically means someone that's observing you, watching you, and then reporting back to their chain of command, the Taliban. There was a guy who I saw that was that was dicking us, as, as weird as that sounds. And he was running out from behind this area of shelter and then running back. And he kept on doing it. So, I, you know, I reported at the chain of command and word came back down and it said, right, fire a warning shot. Now, this is what we always had to do. We always had to, unless we got shot at, we always had the fire warning shots, which were a, a well-aimed shot you know, a good distance, like 50 to 100 meters above someone's head. So they hear the the whiz and the, the thump of a round going over their head and they know what you're trying to say without saying it. On this occasion, I happened to have a UGL, an underslung grenade launcher on the bottom of my weapon that I'd not used. And the command wasn't specific. I wasn't, I just got told far a warning shot. So, you know, I'm only 24 years old, you know, I'm young, cocky and, and arrogant. And I thought this is a good opportunity to test out this grenade launcher. I never fired it. So, yeah, I used the grenade launcher for a warning shot. <laughs> and and I did it, you know, I knew, I, I couldn't tell you now, but I knew back then the, the kill zone. So I knew how close it would be to kill someone, to maim someone or to just let off a loud noise and let them know that we were close. So, you know, I set my sights accordingly, knew it was going to be a good distance away from this guy. I wasn't going to hurt him but I was going to send a message. So I popped off the grenade. He ran and that was that. I got an absolute ass chewing by my troop sergeant for uh, for doing it, but it was definitely worth it for the story. <laughs> it's a great story. At one point, you guys were kind of almost trapped in your base. Weren't you? you were like bombed for like five weeks by the Taliban at one point, weren't you? Yeah, it was constant. Just a, a constant barrage of, you know, mortars, rockets, um, they had a whole range of different weaponry, but yeah, it kept us restricted for quite a while. We were stuck in camp, which is very frustrating. You know, we had manpower issues as well. Our company was, I don't know how many men it is, but we had probably less than half of that. Um, so we were very restricted as to when we could and couldn't go out on the ground. So yeah, we were, we were restricted to the camp for a while, just sat there like sitting ducks, taking income in frustrated that we couldn't get out on the ground and and dominate like we've been doing to that point 
you've been bombed for five weeks, you're fully loaded, you're heading out the gate on patrol, you're pumped. Talk me through that patrol. So we're, you know, we're excited to get out and, and stretch our legs for a bit. We are more than prepared, you know, because it only takes a bit of time to prepare your kit and we've been preparing it for five weeks and we were ready to go. Do you know what I mean? And we, we set up by the the headquarters compound, which was at the opposite side of the opposite end of the, the base now, sort of the top of the kidney, if you like. And we were leaving out the rear gate. Now that's always a, a nerve wracking time because like I said earlier, that's a choke point. You know, you've got to imagine if you're a sniper, it's like walking out your front door. There's only so much, so far you can go. You're, you're there in a door frame, an easy target. So that's always a bit of a worrying time when you first leave. So we have to do what we call hard targeting. So you, you run out and you just zigzag left to right in some random pattern until you can find cover. And then you go out man after man after man to the whole section's out. you got adrenaline and the buzz and, and you're ready to go and you're, you're excited that you're getting out and you're going to be doing your job again. So we did. You know, there were two sections on this particular patrol, eight men in each. And the, the funny thing about this, this patrol was that because we had been stuck in camp so long, we didn't really have a mission. You know, we was literally go out and stretch our legs. Normally we would say, they would say, you know, you go in here, you're going to be out for six, seven hours. You're going to go three, four miles. This is what we want you to do. Then when you're done, come back. The idea here was that we would just leave the rear entrance of the camp. Eight men would go north. Eight men would go south. We patrol the perimeter of our camp. So just around the perimeter wall, no more than 300 meters from the camp. Then we would meet at the opposite side of the camp now. So at the front entrance and then finish up. And that was it. It was literally, like they knew we were frustrated. We just wanted to get out on the ground and stretch our legs. We didn't really have a mission as such. So it was just get out there, show those people watching us that we were back in the game, you know, let the lads get some frustration out, have a bit of a blowout, you know, exercise for a little bit and then, and then get back in. So real basic, real low level, um, standard, I guess, uh, infantry soldiering. The time came and we left. I was second in command of the group that went north. The other guys went south and we went out and did what it was that we were tasked to do. About four and a half, maybe five hours later, both of these sections now found themselves at the front entrance of the camp, ready to finish up for the day. And the section that I was in were on a high piece of ground. It was what we called the North Fort what we call a target indicator. If we ever come into contact from the enemy, we would use that as a reference point. So we were up on the, the North Fort. If you look down, you could see Ford Operating Base Robinson slightly beneath us. So we could see most of that from an elevated view. And then way down beneath that, just off to the side of the main dirt road that ran through the area, was the other section that we left with. So we're in a tactically advantageous position because we can see everything around us. We can see if the enemy are approaching and it's a lot easier to fight down a hill than it is up a hill. So we were tasked with giving that other section what we call overwatch, which basically means we protect them. We'll cover them with our weapons, let them get back in the camp. They get to the safety of the camp behind the perimeter wall. They will cover us. We will peel down off the high section, go back into the camp and finish up. So very easy, very basic. We'd be given that task in. The section commander took half of the section and started giving them fire positions and areas of responsibility. 
I took the other half and about four meters to my front, there was a little shallow bowl in the ground. Now, normally, if you're on a patrol and you go farm, you want to get yourself behind a building, a wall, a tree, a shrub, a rock, whatever you can to give you some cover. You know, if you get fired at, you want to be able to get down and get some cover from fire and cover from view at the very least. Because we were up on this high feature and this ridgeline effectively, we didn't have any of those luxuries. So I thought if we get in this little bowl, we all get down on our bellies, you know, you're not going to be able to see us. You know, worst case scenario, someone's going to try and fire a mortar at us. You know, that'd be the best option. And we can respond quite quickly to that threat. Don't forget as well, we had Sangers as well that were covering us, um, checking for that kind of attack. So it was a very limited possibility. So I thought we get in there, get on our belly. That's our best chance. So the lads jumped in. They started taking up the fire positions. I had a couple of things I had to do, make some last minute checks, you know, to make sure that we are in, in an all round defensive position as well, just in case. When I was happy and the rest of the lads were happy, they gave me the thumbs up. And then I slowly started walking over towards the position that I'd selected for myself. Now, as I got there and I went to get down onto my stomach, I put my right knee on the floor. And as I did, I knelt on and detonated an improvised explosive device. Wow. Okay. Right. So what did you think happened? It's, it's very, it's bizarre, actually. So you've got to imagine, right, Afghanistan, the terrain is very sandy, very dusty. So when an explosion occurs, it instantly creates a, a dust cloud, right? And you can't see anything. So my initial reaction was, we have been attacked. Someone's fired a mortar or a rocket on our position. It's exploded nearby. It's created this dust cloud because I couldn't see anything and I wasn't in any pain. So my adrenaline spikes and my initial, my instant initial reaction is find where the threat came from and neutralize it. Now I knew that where I was, where I was lying down on this high feature behind me about 600 meters down where the other section was, so right below us, was a small rectangular forestry block, right? Just a, a, a copse of trees. Everything else around the area, like where we had that previous firefight, were just fields of mud. No crops, nothing, just bare mud. Instantly, I thought, if you're going to attack us and you've got any common sense, that's where you're going to do it from because there were no other viable options in that area in my mind. I started saying to myself in my mind, you've been attacked, turn around, ID where the enemy is in this little forestry area, start shooting. Then when the lads see that you found them, they'll all start shooting. You can make some sort of tactical withdrawal, get somewhere safer, and then figure out what we're going to do when we've got a bit of cover and we've got a bit more time to think. No, I can't see anything. I'm not in any pain. This dust cloud is, is temporarily blinded me. But after about four or five times, you know, in my mind, I'm saying turn around because the, the forest block was behind me. After about four or five times of saying that, I realized, although I couldn't see, that my body wasn't doing what my brain was telling it to do. You know, because you know instinctively, don't you? you can close your eyes and you can walk around, you know you're walking around. But I'm trying to flip around and turn around and, and find out where this, uh, at least be facing this forestry block when the, the smoke and dust clears. And I knew my body wasn't moving, but I, I didn't know why. I just waited. You know, and you, you've got to, think you know there's, there's lads shouting and screaming at, at this point trying to figure out what's going on your adrenaline spike your fight or flight's kicked in you know everything's going crazy but i just thought well i've got to wait and when i can see things when this dust cloud settles i'll 
assess the situation and make another call. So it got to about chest height and I looked around and, I, and I'm panicking now, you know, just praying that none of my friends have been hurt or killed. I couldn't see anybody. They'd all been blasted out of this little crater that we were in. So I carried on waiting. The dust cloud got about six or eight inches from the floor, hit the ground and disappeared. Now, as it disappeared, I looked down to where my legs should have been. And they had both been completely ripped off uh, from the knees down. It's a very surreal experience, right? So you've got to imagine. And your brain obviously has a lot of trouble trying to process what it is you're looking at. And I was in no pain. And I'm looked down and imagine a skeleton, right? Of, like where your knees join. So my knee joints were there, but all my calves, my shins, everything had been like the flesh had been clean ripped off the bone and my tibia and fibula were still there covered in dust and sand. My feet were gone, you know, incinerated. And you're looking at this like, what the fuck am I looking at? This doesn't make any sense. Probably uh, two seconds later, I snap out of it because I remember about the rest of my team and I start looking around again trying to see them. And then I see my friend, Corporal Sean Halesby, who's in charge of the section. You know, he, he was... The look on his face, he was clearly in a lot of shock. You know, he had no color in his face. It drained out. He was looking at me. We'd been friends since we went through training together in 2001. He just looked at me with this look of horror on his face. And so it, I, don't, I don't know why my thought process was like this. I just thought, well, I'm going to look back at my legs now and, and see if I was just daydreaming or if I'm having a nightmare or what's going on. And so I went to scan the ground to look back at my legs. And I got to about the three o'clock position and I saw my arm like just lying there in the sand. It was still attached uh, by my bicep, but from my bicep to my wrist, the whole thing had been ripped open. You know, it, it looked like a bunch of Rottweilers had just been chewing on my arm and there was no bone in there. There was just flesh and muscle just ripped to shreds. And my hand kind of hanging off the end of where my wrist was just by some tendons and some flesh. And I picked it up. I don't know why. Again, no pain. Just I was just in a. I just felt really uncomfortable, like an intense pins and needles throbbing in my three limbs. And I looked at this hand, and as I did, the combination I think of looking at my legs, looking at my friend's face, and looking at my hand kind of said to me, "This is happening, mate. You're in the shit right now." And I just dropped my hand into the the sand and just just screamed like from frustration when I realised that, you know, we weren't under attack. I am the idiot that stood on an improvised explosive device. And there's a high possibility now that I'm going to die at 24 years old in the middle of a desert, thousands of miles from home. I'm not going to see Christmas Day tomorrow. What ensued was a very chaotic, but extremely professional evacuation. It involved me having to have my own foot put on my stomach when I was put on a stretcher because it was still attached by uh, a tendon to my thigh. One of them had completely gone. One of them was still uh, attached to my right thigh. So I had to, we had to put that on my stomach while the medic evacuated me. Then in the back of a vehicle that was evacuating me, as it was climbing back up a hill to go into the front entrance of the camp to take me into where a helicopter was called to land me, uh, because the terrain is so uneven, you have to drive very aggressively. And as the driver was going up this incline and driving aggressively, me and the doctor fell out the back. 
But as I fell out the back, the driver turned around, reached out and grabbed to hold me in. And he ended up grabbing my femur that was poking out of my right thigh. Oh. The last thing I remember is they got me to the helicopter landing site. And I, I remember the helicopter landing. And then I blacked out, which was when I thought I had died. Having met that whole medical team since that incident, uh, they confirmed that I had died. That was They had put me on the back of a helicopter, pushed me in a corner and said, it's game over. That guy's dead because uh, they were they were trying they were busy trying to save the life of another guy who had got shrapnel wounds to his back and his upper arm, and it sounds harsh, but that's how they do it in in wartime. You know, if you're not breathing, you, you can't get intravenous signs into you or you're showing any signs of life. They just throw you in a corner because they got to make sure they don't have two dead guys. Luckily, one of the medics walked past me to get some equipment to go and work on the other guy, and he saw my eye flutter, which meant to him that my heart was still beating. So he alerted some of the other medics. They came over to me and they performed a procedure on me that had only been cleared for use three days prior to this incident and had never been tested on a casualty in the field before. And what it basically involved was if you can't get an intravenous line into somebody's veins, which they couldn't with me because they had all collapsed because of the blood loss, you would drill into their tibia and their fibia and you'd insert a line that way. Problem being... I didn't have any tibias or fibias because they'd been ripped off by the IED. They decided very courageously to try for my hip. And this had never been done before. Like it wasn't even an option. They just thought this is the like a big bone here. You know, they probably had a medical reason why it was similar to a tibia and fibia. So they drilled into my hip. The first time nothing happened. The, the skin was too loose. And so they they tightened it up, drilled in again. Then the line managed to bite and they got fluids in me. And they said within about three minutes, I was awake and responsive and showing signs of life again, answering questions they were asking me back from the dead. Wow. Mm -hmm. I just want to go back to where you were lying on the ground after the initial explosion. Um, didn't you ask someone to shoot you? I did. Yeah. So like I said, you know, Sean, Corporal Harrisby, the man in charge, I, I trusted him. You know, as I lay there, kind of looking at this mess of, of what was my body, you know, there are a lot of things that go through your mind and they're not things you'd think of, like emotions that, you know, it's not fear, it's, it's not so much panic. My first thought and my first emotion was guilt. Then I started thinking back home. My daughter was just under three years old at the time, my eldest daughter. And then I was thinking, well, if I survive this, what kind of a life is she going to have? Is she going to get bullied at school? You know, is she going to hate me? And all these weird thoughts go running through your mind. It wasn't really about whether I was going to survive or not, because I always knew with the people I had around me and how good they were, that I would survive. And so I just asked Sean, I said, look, I'm not doing this, you know, put a bullet in the back of my head. And I took my helmet off and I kind of looked down at my chest, closed my eyes and I just waited for what I thought would have been, you know, like someone punching you in the back of the head. And then it'd be lights out, you know, quick, clean, easy, job done. I'll pass out and I won't wake up. There was obviously a lot of low points in this story. Um, one of them came on your first sort of foray out of the hospital and into the accommodation where your parents and Becky were staying. I mean, this is this is the big turning point for the story for in your story for me. Um, mm -hmm. 
so can you tell me about what happened there? Yeah, so I had, I had fought off all the infections. Um, I think they were called a Cintobacter, MRSA. I was clear of all of that stuff. So the nurses were happy with me to be out of a hospital environment to have a bit of normality. Now, my family was staying in a flat across the road that was provided by the military. So we decided I'd go over there, we'd get a takeout, I'd sleep in a normal bed and just have a little bit of normality. And it's those little goals that you set yourself that are what get you through. So it was all arranged. We were good to go. We left the hospital. It was a bit weird, you know, because I've gone from six foot two and 16 stone to being in a wheelchair. I think everyone's going to be staring at me. But I was just glad to be out and, you know, and to feel the rain on my face. And we got over there and the flat was in a tower block. We got through the communal entrance in the wheelchair and that was fine. We got through the front door of the flat, which was fine. But because I only have one hand in a manual wheelchair, you have to have all the steering controls to go forward and backwards and left and right on one wheel, which makes it extra wide. And I couldn't access any of the rooms in the flat. So I had to sit in like the hallway and eat my dinner. And I had to pee in a milk bottle because I couldn't get in the toilet. And so it started to hit me a little bit about how different my life was going to be moving forward. And I didn't know a lot about then because you know, it was less than six weeks into it. And we figured out in the evening how to get me from the chair through a doorway um, and then back in the chair. I, I couldn't jump on the floor like I do now because I was still very tender and all my wounds were still open. But we figured that out. And although in the hospital, I had looked in a mirror for shaving and brushing my teeth, it was only really from the neck up. And I hadn't seen myself in a full length mirror. And I wheeled past this mirror in the bedroom. And like I said, I, I, I've gone from six foot two to, I think, I think I'm four foot three without prosthetics on. Five foot eight with them now. And I used to weigh 16 stone at my heaviest. And at this point, I was maybe nine stone two. And so I went past this mirror and I looked at myself. I looked like a skeleton with a thin layer of skin on. That's the only way I can describe it. And I've got this jumper on with the right arm just flapping where I don't have an arm to fill it and these shorts with no legs poking out the bottom of them sat in this wheelchair and I just looked at myself and I didn't recognize myself and I just burst out crying and I spent the whole night in that room with Becky just saying I didn't want to live you know I wanted to kill myself I couldn't see my life exist in this way you know I was 24 and I thought to myself I've got a good 70, 80 years left in me. I can't look like this and have all these people running around after me, pushing me in a wheelchair and, you know, helping me do this, helping me do that. I've just gone from being an elite soldier, running around in a war zone, kicking ass and doing everything for myself and leading people and, and you know, being at the peak of what I wanted to be at a young age to this. And I didn't want it. You know what I mean? And I know we haven't really talked about it, but I've, I've also... You know, I'm a, trained as a bodyguard previously. I, I worked as a nightclub doorman. I was a martial artist. All these things that were important to me were taken away. And I couldn't see myself living the rest of my life that way. You know, the next morning, there's, there's a lot to be said for having a good cry and the purge, you know, and getting all those negative emotions out. And next morning we got up and we're just like, you know what? Fuck it. Let's go. Let's set some goals. Let's figure out what life's going to be like. What are my options? What can I do? And let's just go kill it. So that's what we did. Because you've got an extremely positive mindset. Is that when you started to build that? I did to a degree. Setting goals was extremely important. 
you got to imagine you're in a hospital bed for a lot of this this first six weeks, and there's a lot of headspace, a lot of time to think. Mm. And if you've got nothing to aim for, all you do is think about the bad part of your situation. Then I had a visit from a guy who had been injured in Iraq in 2005, who lost both his legs above the knee. He came to visit me wearing prosthetics, which after just being told by the doctor, prosthetics weren't an option for me because my injuries were too severe. I see a guy walk in my room wearing them and that lights me up because then I'm like, well, this dude's done it. So obviously it's doable. I just need to kind of copy what he did. And then I'll, and you know, so then morale goes up another level. So you're, you're having these little wins every day, chipping away at, at the big challenges. Then you see what's possible. Then you know what's possible because you've seen someone else do it and your morale starts to build. Next up is your wedding day. Another big goal for you to dance at your wedding. Talk me, talk me through that day. You know, I had this blueprint, if you like, about how I was going to rehab. And I just, I knew that every day I would get stronger. And every day I'd get a little bit better and I'd figure the technique out and it wouldn't hurt so much. So I just had to build on it, you know, and we had planned our wedding day for 2nd of May, 2009. So I had a target again to uh, to work towards. And so I just started training, you know, up in the intensity, whether it was walking or cardio or, you know, I had to change my diet completely. I, I figured all this stuff out as I was going about the way I had to eat and the way I had to live. And, uh, yeah, because I because of what I'd said in Afghanistan, you know, my dancing days are over. I thought, well, actually, maybe they're not. And maybe I can dance at, at my wedding. And I wanted, you know, wedding photos. And I didn't want photos of me at my house, at my home, in a wheelchair, in my uniform, with my medals on, with my wife sat on my lap. I wanted to be stood up again, you know, so that with my uniform on, you couldn't even tell. It didn't go that well. Not from my point of view, from, from everyone looking in it probably did but there were a lot of things that I, I messed up on so for example I'd never wore dress shoes before and because they've got a heel on them because my prosthetics have got a fixed ankle every time I stood up I just toppled forward when I was getting dressed because of the heel on the shoe and I never thought about it before so I actually had to put a pair of trainers on in the end because I couldn't stand up straight the arm that I had you have to fix it with a silicone sock with like a metal nipple on the end of it that ratchets into the socket. Well, I forgot the sock. So I had to put it on with no sock on and use my uniform to hold it into place. So it was just kind of like loose under the jacket and it was a bit of a nightmare, but we managed it. You know, I walked down the aisle. I stood up throughout the whole ceremony. We danced the first dance and, uh, then I took the legs off because people started passing beer around. And I just thought, oh, this is a bit too much. I can't be drinking, getting drunk on prosthetics. So yeah, I jumped in a wheelchair after, you know, got leathered and had a good time. <laughs> so, so it all worked out well in the end. And in the end. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Uh, looking at the process that it took to get there, obviously you went through a lot of rehab and now you've you started to see that you could do work with within that space to help some of the charities with injured war veterans. Can you tell me more about that? I think in every bad situation, if you look hard enough, you can find good in it. And I was the UK's first triple amputee. Apart from the guy that visited me in hospital and showed me the prosthetics, there, there was there was no one else really that had been injured at this level. But they started coming through more and more rapidly after I was injured. You know, lads missing a foot, lads missing both legs, lads in wheelchairs. I understood the power of when when Mick came to visit me, the, the effect it had on me, the positive effect was massive. And I wanted to pass that on, but I was very aware that I couldn't just force myself on it, you know, because I thought it was arrogant as hell to be like, oh, look, another injured guy. I'll go visit him because maybe he doesn't want to visit. Maybe he's not ready for that, right? So I would always wait until I was asked. And if I was asked, I would go up to the hospital and I'd visit people and I'd do for them what Mick did for me. You know, I'd, I'd talk them through things and let them know it's going to be all right. I'd, I'd tell them a bit about my journey and then offer my help if they needed it. Most of them didn't, you know, most of them were, were strong enough to just crack on their own and, and figure it out. And it led on to other things. You know, I started working with a bunch of military charities with things like fundraising, you know, because for like 10 years, we were in the media constantly. Me, as I am now, is, is a very strong visual aid. You know, when it comes to things like fundraising, they see the prosthetics, the scars, the barns, the wheelchairs for some people, whatever it is. And they see where their money would be going to help if they chose to donate. So I started helping, uh, working with a bunch of charities, trying to do what I could, which was great. When I was discharged, I had no idea what I was going to do. I started a bit of speaking. Uh, I found out that you could only live in doing that. And then I was approached by a retired brigadier in the Royal Marines who offered me a job with the Royal Marines charity. I said, yes. I said, what do you need me to do? He said, don't know. We'll figure it out. And <laughs> That was their way of, of supporting me. They offered me a job and I, I did it for the last 10 years, just finished at the beginning of 2021. Wow. You met Prince Harry and William along the way, didn't you? You had a bit to do with them. Yeah, a couple of times. We've been to a couple of social events together over the years for the military. Um, I did the Invictus Games. It was Prince Harry's baby. Uh, we did that twice. Yeah, I mean, like I said, in, in all these bad situations, a lot of good comes from it. So I've got to meet a lot of cool people. Yeah go to a lot of cool events and do a lot of cool things that I probably wouldn't have done had this not happened. Obviously, Harry and William are part of the uh, British military, were part of the British military. I'm not sure what their situation is now. But how cool was it for them to come and visit you guys and sit down and actually get involved in what you were doing? I think it was it was really cool on, on two different levels. Um, first of all, myself being just a, what you could call a junior NCO, um, to have... An, officers come along and give up their time to to check on you and, and you know make sure you're right and, and genuinely 
want to be there and genuinely care was cool. But then obviously they're members of the royal family as well, you know? So they, they would come all the time when their schedule allowed. And there was one or two times when it was a, you know, press were involved, but a lot of the time it was just a private environment, no cameras, no reporters, just one-on-one being real, making sure everyone's all right and helping where they can. Really cool people. Is it frustrating when you see how much, I mean, we're going off on a tangent here, but is it frustrating when you see how much grief they get in the press considering the service that they've gone through for the country? Yeah, it is. It is. I, I never comment on it. I don't think it's my place to. And, and I've had the media ringing me up the last week or two, actually asking me to do stories about this. And I just turn it down because, you know, it's not my business and I'm not trying to make a name on myself by being that kind of person, but it, it does frustrate me. Yeah. Because people forget very quickly you know, for like, I was going to say 10 years, but 10 years that I'm aware, 10 years plus where everybody was just singing their praises, you know, especially when the Invictus Games came around. And then all of a sudden, like that, the complete opposite, do a 180 and it's all all this negativity. And I'm, I'm just, I'm not a big fan of that with anybody, mm. you know, let alone people that have, have served their country at the level that they have. How do you view those guys like in, in the service? I mean, I guess I'm giving you a chance to sort of, talk about the service that they have provided through their um, work in the British military. Like, how do you sort of view how big and how important their their role has been? Put, put yourself in that situation. Okay, You're a member of the royal family, right? You've got a great life. You know, you can, you do these incredible things and that can continue forever. So why would you want to put yourself in danger where you could potentially end up like me or dead. Yeah, I think it takes a different kind of person to step up and do that. Do you know what I mean? It's um and a lot of people I think forget that. You know, they don't have to do that. You know, Harry was on the front line. You know what I mean? Fighting on the front line as as a prince. He didn't have to do that. You know, it could have had devastating effects. You know, we're all targets, but that's a much more high profile target where a lot of people would have been, you know, gathering around to try and and get that win. Do you know what I mean? So I think some people need to think about that sometimes. It's a very brave decision to go and do that. And then afterwards, I honestly think that we, as in the wounded, injured and sick veteran community from Iraq and Afghanistan would have a very different quality of life now, a a much worse one, had it not been for a lot of the stuff that they pushed. And... I'll even go as far to saying as veterans from conflicts past, Kosovo, Bosnia, the Falklands, you know, the first Gulf War, all this stuff, they had it a lot rougher than we do, right? And if anyone says any different, then they're stupid. But I think that their quality of life and their status as a veteran has been vastly increased. They haven't been forgotten about before I think they had. But with Iraq and Afghanistan and the royal involvement, it's elevated veteran status, you know, and there's been so many things and so many more parks that have come about now as a result of being a veteran across the board that I don't think would be a thing now had it not been for their involvement. Your involvement in the Invictus Games, which is obviously Harry's baby, almost didn't come about originally, didn't it? Yeah, sport, sport was never part of my recovery. You know, I mean, it, I, I say this all the time. It's really funny, but my experience was that whenever I'd meet someone new, 
they would always ask me when I was going to start training for the Paralympics. Like it was something you had to do if you were disabled. And I'm like, look, my background was martial arts. I can't do that now. I've never sprinted a hundred meters. I've never done the long jump. I've never done the high jump. Those things don't interest me. So I'm not going to do sport. I want to learn how to use my legs, leave my wheelchair behind and go out and get a job and, and live my life. I saw the Invictus Games. You know, I saw the first one in London. I got invited up to the closing ceremony. And so I only saw the, the end of it, but the atmosphere was insane. And then I saw my friends go to Florida the year after. A lot of them won medals, which is great. But because I knew them outside of that environment, I saw how much of a positive impact they had on their recovery and their lives. And then in 2016, I was sat exactly where I am now, in this room, at this desk, and I was goal setting for 2017, like I do every year. And I realized that Christmas Eve 2017 was my 10-year anniversary. And so I thought, what can I do to celebrate 10 years that I haven't done before? And it was sport. So I'd seen these two previous Invictus Games. I saw how positive the impact they had on, on the guys that were taking part and their families. So I thought, you know, I'll, I'll give that a shot. Do you know what I mean? It can't be that hard. I've seen the sports they do. I never thought I'd get in because I wasn't in any of those cliques. I had no, I had never sat on a rowing machine before. I tried swimming once and seriously nearly drowned because uh, of the, the way swimming works differently for me. I nearly killed myself the first time I tried. Never done any of these things, but I just thought, you know what? Go big or go home. Let's just see if we can get in a team and then we'll worry about figuring stuff out after that. And that's what I did. You know, I was lucky enough to make the team Competed the first year in Canada, did okay. Didn't do as well as I wanted to do. So I went back in Australia, righted some wrongs, dropped the mic and walked off into the sunset. <laughs> so You won a lot of gold medals and you won a lot of, you won a lot of medals. Um, the most interesting story for me out of that was you having a crack at the breaststroke. Can you talk me through mm. that? <laughs> how did that, the, the story behind that's quite, it was all very last minute, wasn't it? Yeah, so I made some good friends in Canada. But bizarrely, a lot of the guys on the Australian team, one of their coaches actually is, is from Plymouth, right? right? And his parents live just around the corner from me. But he lives in Australia. He's in the Australian army now. So we became friends quite quickly. And I competed against some of the Australians in Canada. I made some good friends. And in swimming, because of the classification that I'm in, because there aren't very many people with my extent of injuries, you don't have to do any heats. So there's no swimming to get into the semis or the quarterfinals. Or the, you just go straight to the final. And I was sat at the poolside with the Australians, uh, just catching up, watching all the other guys in the heats the day before the finals. And I asked what competition uh, Gary was swimming in. Gary's one of the, the Australian athletes that I swim against. And so they, he, he was doing it all. 50 meter backstroke, 100 meter backstroke, freestyle breast and all this kind of stuff and in the breaststroke he was the only athlete and i didn't know any i didn't know how it all worked so i said to neil the coach said oh that's great i mean he's just going to get a gold medal because i thought it was like boxing right you get a walk over and you just you get the win and they're like no it doesn't work that way you have to have at least two people in to fight for gold and silver or they'll just cancel the event and I literally like looked around me. I looked at all the athletes. I looked up into the crowd and I saw there was people because the swimming was going on and they're screaming and cheering and they've come from all over the world, right? And I was like, well, he's trained for it. All these people have come here. 
you know, if you go and ask the judges, if I can jump in last minute, I'll jump in just to give people something to watch. I never thought he'd come back. I thought it was too late. So he, uh, Neil comes back and he's like, they've said it's okay. You can swim tomorrow. And I'm like, shit, I don't even know how to do breaststroke. So there was a 25 meter pool. So I turned up the day of the finals, got in the pool, start doing breaststroke like I used to. And I, I went around in a circle. Literally, I'm doing this. And I'm just spinning. And I'm like, how the hell am I going to do this? So I developed very quickly in a, I think I in total swam 50 meters, developed this weird combination of a breaststroke and a doggy paddle. So I could just scoop the water and then I was, I had to race. So I went down to the blocks, got on there and I thought this is going to be embarrassing. Now, the way I swim, I always have to have air in my lungs that, you know, like I said, I nearly drowned earlier. Right. If I breathe out, I sink really quickly. Right. That's why I nearly drowned the first time I tried. I didn't know that. It never used to be that way when I had legs. My technique for a lot of swimming is to hold my breath as long as I can and go underwater because I swim quicker underwater. Now, I couldn't really do that with a breaststroke because it, it was new and it didn't work. But I knew I had to just hold my breath above the water and go for it. And I got in and I'm firing down this lane. And Gary's got this yellow Australia swimming cap on. And there's a giant TV in front of me and I can see him out the corner of my eyes. He's quite far behind. And then all the lactic acid started to build up in my forearm and my hand went like this. So I'm not scooping any water. My fingers are open and I'm running out of breath and I can see out the corner of my eye, this yellow hat gaining on me. Right, So I start to panic. And then as I open my mouth to breathe, this drop of water hits the back of my tonsils and makes me need to cough. Oh, I hate but that. I know it. Right. And I know if I cough, I'm going to breathe out and I'm going to sink. And I'm oh, like shit. eight meters from the end, if that. So I just start drinking the water. I think if I drink it, it's going to hit the little tickly spot, you know, lubricate it so I don't cough. And then I just keep drinking and drinking and drinking. So I've got lungs full of air and I start drinking the pool water and it's getting closer and closer and closer. And in the end, I just reached as fast as I punched the wall. I nearly punched a hole through this wall. Surprised I didn't break my knuckles actually. I managed to grab the grate because I was done. I was I had no breath in me. I was drowning. It, it was horrible. And uh pulled myself up. All my goggles had steamed up. I couldn't see the leaderboard. Looked up and I just made it by 0.02 of a second. You won the gold. Just yeah, just by 0.02. It was literally probably because my fingernails were longer than his that we got I got there just before him. It was emotional. And I thought I was going to be sat up on night shitting because I drank so much water and chlorine and stuff. <laughs> but look, I was all right. But, oh man, it was epic. The thing with swimming as well is you can't really feed off the crowd because you can't hear them. You're in your own little world with goggles with a swimming cap over your ears. It's crazy. Great, great memories. Then you've um, you've gone and got yourself an MBE. Did you get to make the Queen? Well, I haven't collected it yet. Haven't I've you? met the Queen before. It, this was a long time ago. And I know it was a long time ago because I was still in a wheelchair. It was at Windsor Castle and we turned up late. It was a big thing with it. Like all the guys that were going for rehab were invited to a like a tea party and the driver got lost. So I'm the first one that they pushed through these big double doors and the queen's there to greet us and she, she didn't look happy. <laughs> but, um, no, she, she was lovely. Um, but yeah, the MBE thing, because of COVID, uh, nobody's been able to go up and, and do the ceremony. I don't even know when it's going to be. I've not had an email to say 
you know, prepare for this date or anything. So it'll happen when it happens. Yeah, congratulations. So you've worked with a lot of military charities over the years. What what now? What You've just finished 10 years with the Royal Marines. What, what are you doing now? So I'm staying on as an ambassador with the Royal Marines charity. I, I only left purely now because I've got a lot of my own personal projects that I want to pursue and I need to give them my full attention. So I'm going to stay on as an ambassador. I'll always work with them. They've done so much for me. Uh, I like to do what I can for them. But I'm also a trustee now of a, a newly formed charity called Reorg. What a Reorg is for non-military aren't familiar is if you're, go back to what I said earlier about that eight-man section of blokes, right? If you're attacking a position, you obviously have a plan, but no plan survives contact with the enemy. So it usually goes to shit. But when you fought through that first objective, you have a thing called a Reorg, which is when you all get back together you check off each other, make sure there's no casualties, count your ammunition to make sure you're ready to go on to the next phase, right, of the attack. So this charity reorg is about, it started as when lads left the military, this is how they come back together, right, to keep in contact, to check each other off, make sure everyone's okay. Now, it started with Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and it was a way to help lads who had suffered physically and psychologically as a result of their service, it now works with the emergency services, the police, the ambulance service, the fire brigade, still using Brazilian jiu-jitsu as the main vehicle of, of therapy, but also just lifestyle, you know, being around like-minded people that have been through a similar thing. It's a global charity. It's, it's growing exponentially uh, right now, spreading all over the planet in Australia, America, the UK, everywhere, Brazil. It's just more and more people are getting on board with this daily. And it, yeah, it's effectively using Brazilian jiu-jitsu to help rehabilitate people. You know, it's the closest thing that I've found since leaving the military to that camaraderie and, and that brotherhood, which is why I think it's so powerful. And that translates across the police, the, the fire brigade, the the ambulance service. So yeah, I'm a trustee for, for Reorg. And I'm, I'm in the middle of a fundraiser now, actually. I started off by beginning the year, I just wanted to shave my beard and to raise awareness and that really quickly morphed into now i'm going to be doing a 5k run which is extremely difficult when you've got no knees and only one arm to drive with and then i've got other guys talking to me about doing other events and maybe finishing off at the end of the year having raised 100 grand for the charity so yeah doing as much as i can with those guys right now how can people get involved the, the best way is either on the website which is reorg.org, uh, I think, or Instagram. Instagram's the main way of communicating right now. Uh, just go on there, drop the guys a DM. The founder's name is Sam, Sam Sheriff. He's a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. He's my professor. Uh, and just reach out and, and see what you can do to help. You know, if you can donate, brilliant. If you can offer help or support, fantastic. If you want to, you know, be involved and become, I don't know what they call them in McDonald's, you'd call it a franchisee, but we, you know, we're reaching out to people, affiliate and affiliate um, to get clubs affiliated. So yeah, just reach out and uh, we, we'd love to do work together. Mark Wormrod, thank you very much for coming on the show, but most importantly, thank you for your service. Thank you, mate. It's been it's been great. I've had a lot of fun. Thank you. It's been a good show. If you want to learn more about Mark, uh, make sure you visit his website, markwoman.com. And if you're looking for a book to read, you cannot go past his award-winning true story, Man Down. It's getting made into a movie, isn't it? Can we talk about that or not? 
It is. It is getting made into a movie. Yeah. A week before lockdown, right, right back when this all started, we signed the contracts to do that, and then everything got put on hold. So we have been making progress. There's a lot of, I'm sure you can imagine, like the boring stuff that goes on behind the scenes that I don't know anything about. So the team were working hard on that. Scripts, funding, locations, actors, talent, all that. Oh, well, who's playing you? I don't know yet. I don't know yet. We've had a lot of conversations. We've thrown a few names around. Go on, man. So one name that people have been bringing up is Joe Cole, not the footballer. Right. Um, he was in Peaky Blinders. He was the lead actor in Gangs of London. Right. Um, Jack O'Connell was a name. Right. Okay. So who's your preference? <laughs> I don't know. I don't. The the difficulty is I was 24 years old, right? Yeah. So I'm 37 now. I need to find someone young and up and coming who can play a 24 year old. Mm. So that's the difficulty. We've got a meeting booked for a couple of weeks' time, so I think we're going to kind of niche down now and start reaching out. Now things are starting to go back to normal because the problem as well is none of them know what their schedules are because they've all been knocked out of sync. So there's only so much we can do, but we're going to work on this now and then start reaching out, I think. We're going to have to come to a final decision. Oh, best of luck with it. Thank you. And thank you very much for listening. A massive thank you if you've left us a review already. I've been blown away by all your support. And if you like this interview, it'll be amazing if you could share it with your mates as well. We'll talk again next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.